It's like the rock, scissor, papers of basketball. Rock, scissor, papers? <laughs> rock, paper, Is it scissors. rock, papers? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Does it have to go in that order? I've only ever heard it in that order. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is April 14th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me from safe, remote distances are senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hey, Sarah. I'm feeling safe and remote. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> and 538 contributor Jeff Foster. How are you, Jeff? I'm well. How are you, Sarah? You know, hanging in there. Um, Jeff, did you happen to watch the Masters Rewinds on CBS this weekend? I watched it partially. Very little. Very little. I, I, I sort of turned it on just to sort of acknowledge it. And then I have two daughters and that wasn't going to fly. Like, generally, <laughs> golf doesn't fly on the television, even if it's, you know, like Tiger Woods winning a year ago. Um but yeah, replay golf, tough sell. <laughs> that makes sense. I did watch live sports this weekend, though. Live, real sports. Horse racing? Ponies? The Oaklawn Stakes? What a race. Great stuff. Listen, horse racing's all we got. I'm going to have to convince you two to come on board. <laughs> what will I watch first? Horse racing or esports? Definitely horse racing. Horse racing's a real sport. Trick question. That I will actually watch happens. of golf. But here's the thing. You know, I bet on it, which immediately makes it exciting. For that moment, you know, obviously all the fanfare is gone, and obviously you're watching the Oaklawn Stakes and not the Kentucky Derby, and they have none of that, you know, you know, uh, pageantry that you normally see. But once the actual two minutes of the race going on, same exact thing. Same thing. I could be watching it. That's the beauty of it. You know, it could be... It could be the greatest Kentucky Derby ever, or it could be whatever race. It could be the third race at Aqueduct on a That Tuesday. just shows how uh, <laughs> inessential all the pomp and circumstance around the Kentucky it really Derby does. is. It really does. It really does. Which I've known shows... for years. I've always said, you know, when the coverage starts at whenever it is, like 3 p.m. or 2 p.m. or something, and then it's like three hours of just people talking and watching people in funny hats until they finally start the race. And it's just like, tell me when the race is going to start. I don't need this other BS just I want to watch horses race. And in fact, why not let the horses race free now? Why do we need jockeys? I mean, that it does isn't it a violation of social Neil. distancing to have the jockeys be, you know, on top of the horses within 6 feet of each other? I say well, just give the horses control. They're not the horses in, should be in charge anyway. They're not within 6 feet of each other that often and they're also moving quite quickly and their faces are covered. Um, and also if someone is coughing, you just you're on a horse. You know, run away from them, you know, get away. It's <laughs> Aren't easy they exit chasing strategy. You? Like... <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I mean, except for the actual, like, in the gate and the in the two minutes of the race, there, there's not a lot of, like, athletes on top of each other. Um, there, there's always a lot of No, they're on top of the horses. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on today's show, we'll preview the WNBA draft and what will happen after Sabrina Ionescu goes first. Then we'll hop over to the NBA to discuss some of the details of how the league is trying to reopen, as well as why it really needs to. And for the second week in a row, we have a special guest to help us take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. 
The WNBA draft will, of course, be virtual this year, but it will proceed as scheduled this Friday, April 17th. The New York Liberty have the first pitch at... What? The first pitch? What? That's how much I want baseball right now. The New York Liberty will have the first pick, and pretty much everyone knows what they'll be doing with it. As Julian Viani Brain laid out Monday on the Yes Network. Rita Ionescu is, uh, she's one of the best I've seen in a very, very long time. Uh, she has that, she reminds me a little bit of the way Chelsea Plum played when Chelsea was a senior uh, at Washington uh, throughout her career where she dominated, but I feel like she's actually better um, because she's more versatile than her. And uh, I agree, there's no way in God's green earth that the Liberty don't take her as, as number one pick. The Liberty picking Ionescu seems as sure a bet as you can make. In fact, Jeff, the Vegas lines on the number one pick are kind of wild. Yeah, so the latest we're seeing is minus 20,000 to one, <laughs> which just to put that in perspective, if you bet $100, you would win back 50 cents. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I like that. I like that return. Yeah, that's not a good bet. Uh, don't do that. It's just not worth it. Uh, to put that in perspective, I actually tried to find some things recently that compared and there really was not much. Um, Joe Burrow. I couldn't find all the draft odds, but Zion was like minus 2000 to one or something, which is like, you know, still a 95% uh, implied probability, but not as high. Joe Burrow to win the Heisman was minus 12,500 to one, which is close. I even looked at Brad Pitt to win Best supporting actor was minus forty two hundred and fifty to one, which I mean, it was he was definitely winning, but that's like a fraction. So that is a lock. Well, so this, yeah, so UNESCO is definitely going to New York here. Don't don't bet on it because you won't make any money, but it's a solid bet. Neil, how well will she fit in in New York? How big can she be? Well, she's already pretty big. I mean, if you think about her college legacy, she's the all-time leader in triple doubles in women's college basketball, the only player ever to have 2,000 points, 1,000 assists, and 1,000 rebounds in her career. Uh, and we're talking about somebody that has a lot of skills that seem like they can kind of port over uh, at the pro level, one of the most efficient shooters in college basketball last season, but also the the leader in assist rate for the entire country. One of the best assist to turnover rates also even had a, a pretty good steal rate. So very complete player, complete guard, shoots well from inside the arc and outside. Uh, and if you think about the team that she's going to, the Liberty, you know, they have players that uh, could use her to open up opportunities to shoot from deep. I'm thinking about Kia Nurse, you know, even somebody like Tina Charles. They're counting on her to kind of turn things around and be, you know, one of the biggest superstars in the WNBA that we've seen in a while. And uh, to play in New York and kind of have that elevated profile of, of being in the biggest market in the country. Also, the Liberty will be moving to the Barclays Center, which is a big kind of high profile move uh, for them. They'd been playing up in Westchester County uh, for for a while. And so I think all those things coming together and just the, if you look at the history of the number one overall pick in the WNBA draft, it's got a pretty good track record. You know, there's there's been a few. Uh, it's been mixed over the past few years. You know, Jackie Young 
kind of struggled her rookie year. Kelsey Plum's been up and down, but then you have Aja Wilson and Brianna Stewart and Jewel Lloyd. And so I think that UNESCO being this lock for the number one pick as much of a lock as we've seen, she could even exceed that history that number one overall picks have had, which has been great. You see this in, in basketball in particular, both on the men's and women's side, that when you have somebody that's such an overwhelming favorite to be the number one overall pick, they tend to have really, really good careers uh, as a general rule. Yeah, I think we'd all be pretty surprised if she doesn't pan out. You know, if she were a bust in the WNBA, I'm pretty. I think we would all be pretty shocked. I mean, by that, that would be one of the most stunning busts to happen in sports history. I think at this point, I, I, um, this pick, the fact that she's going to the Liberty, I, I sent me on a little mini rabbit hole. We're gonna have a little mini rabbit hole mid episode here. I was nice. shocked how few number one overall picks the New York teams have had um, since 1980 or so. This is the first time the Liberty have had one. The Knicks haven't had one since Ewing in 1985 um, with their famous bad lottery luck. Giants never had one. Rangers never had one. The Islanders and Devils have had a bunch recently, but they don't really count. The Jets had Keyshawn Johnson in 1996. That was the last one. Uh, the Yankees had Brian Taylor, Brian spelled wrong, who was a famous bust in 1991. And the Mets had Paul Wilson in 94, Sean Abner in 84, and Daryl Strawberry in 1980. That's it. That's very few. So this is a big deal for a, a New York team. And also, it's it's quietly a pretty embarrassing fact that the Liberty have not won a title. Yeah, I, yeah. To to have Tina Charles for for that long and not win a title, I think is 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 a surprise. I mean, I think they had gotten kind of close, but yeah, couldn't quite make the make that leap. Well, yeah, I, this is really um, interesting. They lost the finals four times in their first six years of existence, which were the first six years of the of the WNBA existing. Also, so they're snake bit. This is a chance to kind of turn around a, a long suffering team. Sarah, yeah. you're hosting this podcast but you are also the best equipped to answer the questions here as the resident WNBA maven so why don't you tell us who else what what team should we be looking at in this draft we have a story up on the site right now by 538 contributor Howard Megdal about just where things stand in the league headed into the draft this was a huge offseason for the WNBA with signing the new collective bargaining agreement um, in January, and players have more freedom to move around now to switch teams. They can um, they can move a year earlier in their careers. Then the CBA significantly increased both the salary cap and max salaries. So free agency this year for the WNBA was wild, and it involved a lot of draft picks changing hands too. So the most interesting team for, to me going into the draft are the Dallas Wings because they have four picks in the first round and two more in the second. They have picks two, five, seven, nine, fifteen, and 21, which is uh, a lot. <laughs> They're going to get a lot of players. Um, they've really – the Wings are completely – changing the way their team looks um, from two years ago when Dallas made the playoffs only two players uh, who accumulated win shares that season remain on the roster and Kayla Thornton and Alicia Gray so they're going to be a completely rebuilt team which should be really interesting 
Um, the Atlanta Dream to look fundamentally different going into this draft. Um, no longer do they have Angel McCaudry or Brittany Sykes. Um, but they did acquire in the offseason Kalani Brown, who's one of my favorite players. I loved watching her at Baylor and um, hope she um, kind of builds on her rookie season with the Dream this year. And they also picked up another one of my favorite players in Courtney Williams. Um, if you watched the WNBA Finals last year, she was so fun to watch with the Sun. So for Atlanta, they're probably hoping to get Kennedy Carter from Texas A&M with their fourth pick. But we'll see how that goes, obviously. So the lottery picks after UNESCO, Satu Sabali, uh, Sabrina's Oregon teammate, is likely to go number two to Dallas. Um, what about the third and fourth picks, Neil? Yeah, once you get down to number three, it seems like Lauren Cox from Baylor uh, is is kind of the consensus at number three. Uh, she's kind of an interesting, you know, maybe a throwback player in some ways, a rebounder and, and defensive type, but also has some passing skills. Uh, and then uh, Kennedy Carter of Texas A&M is the consensus number four. Uh, so that would be going to Atlanta. Uh, and she's a big time scorer. She averaged 21.3 points per game this season and the dream definitely need help on offense. They had uh, a historically bad offense last season. So maybe she can kind of inject uh, some of that, uh, you know, scoring ability uh, that's much needed for them. So that's sort of the, the, the top tier of, of the mock drafts right now, when we're kind of looking at the consensus of the various people who are kind of breaking it down. Yeah, I think Probably the only drama we might see is if Indiana takes Carter at number three, if they decide to kind of revamp their their uh, guard play and, and go with Carter, which I think uh, Atlanta would be bummed about. I think they want Carter pretty badly. But Lauren Cox would be a good consolation. Well, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> from from our presumptive champion, what 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 should we call them? The imaginary champion? The, yeah, the, the I don't know, the paper champion. Paper um, champion. I like There that. are they're the champions in our hearts. That's that's what Baylor is this year. <laughs> so the WNBA season was supposed to start on May 15th and obviously will not be doing that. So we're always talking about momentum with women's basketball, but I'm going to talk about it again. Jeff, is it smart for the league to go ahead with the draft now when there could be a long wait for play to start up and that momentum won't necessarily carry over? It's funny because a, a year ago, we were criticizing the timing of the WNBA draft um, because, it, it remember, UNESCO pulled out like right before the draft because the season the college season ends and the draft is way too way too close to uh, the end of the tournament. And it was really just a bad thing. Um, and we were kind of talking about how, how uh, you know, they, they probably could have used some more time to like sort it down and, 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 and pace it a little bit. Um, and also unfair for these players to have to make this quick decision. But now, 100%, go for it. Why not? Look, I watched the <laughs> Oakland Stakes this weekend. Neil's watching Horse. We're talking about video games. I mean, put it on. Like, people will, are desperate for anything. I mean, I think it'll probably be the, you know, more attention we pay to this draft than probably any WMB draft ever. So I, I think it's a good thing. I mean, now the question is, like, would it be s smarter to wait and, like, you know, wait till we're closer to maybe having some resolution on this and, and knowing? 
I guess, but you know, then there'll be more things to compete with. So here's an open runway to, to provide actual, you know, sporting event, if we call it a sporting event, actual, you know, things that matter in sports. So why not? Yeah. And from the player's perspective, it's probably better to know where you're going to end up going, you know, and, and be able to prepare for that just in terms of the logistics of going to a new city amidst all this craziness. Is the only difference like having a camera trained on the one person who doesn't get picked in the first round and like you could go to the camera in that person's house go to the camera (laughs) go to the live zoom from that player's house to see their frustration (laughs) that person has definitely disabled their camera at that point right (laughs) yeah right they've muted video (laughs) yeah Uh, also i mean i think uh, it's it's nice. It's always nice to be able to see the the newly drafted players kind of put on the hat uh, or or the jersey or whatever for their new team. And it's even better when you can kind of go back and look for players that were traded immediately after putting on the hat from the team. And so you'll end up with weird photos of pl- uh, players who ended up being iconic with one team, but on draft day they were wearing a different hat. Uh, <laughs> so I think they should send the WNBA should send a hat from every team to all of the top. Uh, prospects except maybe sabrina just send her a liberty hat uh and and then they can just put on whatever hat ends up being the right one that they were picked and they're just yeah i knew it all along it's right. the chicago sky yeah of that's course. yeah that's actually really smart well so is there anything that WNBA should be doing to kind of maintain the interest in the league that had been rising and and we assume will rise with this draft should they should there be things that they do up until the point when they actually start playing to keep people paying attention? Well, clearly more horse. Allie Quigley <laughs> looking great in that uh, competition beat Chris Paul the other day. So she's another one of the favorites. Wouldn't surprise me if it was uh, came down to Mike Conley and Allie Quigley. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think, you know, it's the same thing that uh, the NBA is trying to do, too, in terms of trying to... Um, you know, just get the players, keep them from being out of sight and out of mind and continue to be relevant, I think, um, you know, through whatever gimmicks you can cook up in some PR meeting, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I imagine there are still lots of those going on even during the quarantine. So I'm sure they'll they'll cook up something. OK, I think that's a good spot for us to pause for a word from this week's sponsor, Allbirds. We are in strange times, and not just because of the lack of sports. One of the best ways we can feel less helpless about all of this is to find ways to help out others, whether that's calling a loved one to make sure they're okay, getting your next quarantine read from your local bookstore, or buying sustainably to help support our planet. That's why Allbirds is on a mission to leave the planet in better shape than they found it. Allbirds makes shoes from premium, renewable materials that are not only incredibly soft, light, and comfortable, they're purposefully designed to be carbon neutral. Their average carbon footprint per product is equal to five dryer loads or driving 19 miles in a car. And they're actually committed to lowering that impact over time, so they leave a better kind of footprint. That's not just an incredible pun, it's also an awesome way to run a business. I have a pair of Allbirds wool runners, and they are absolutely lovely. I'm always worried about breaking in a new pair of shoes, but these were super comfy from the first time I wore them. Even though I'm not making use of the runner part of the shoe's name right now, they're still great for those exciting quarantine moments like taking out the trash. (laughs) With Allbirds, you can feel confident knowing that you're wearing a product that's doing right by your feet and the planet. 
Learn more about their sustainable practices and find your pair today at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Allbirds, light on your feet, easy on the planet. The NBA front office, league executives, and the Players Association continue to make plans to play something at some point. Aside from putting games of horse on our TV screens, more details have come out about how the league could create a bubble that would allow for honest-to-goodness five-on-five basketball games. Bill Simmons had this to say on his podcast Monday about the possibility of actually pulling it off. And I do think there's a world in which it could happen. I think they would have to limit the amount of teams. I think they would have to maybe go eight. I I don't think they could do 16. I don't think it could drag on too long. I don't think people are going to want to be quarantined from their families for, you know, three months, something like that. But if you're just talking about a sprint and just trying to get the playoffs done, whether it's 12 teams, the top four get uh, buys in round one, everything else is like best of three. And then it goes best of five for the second round. And you kind of move through and you try to get it done in seven weeks. And everybody is either hotel or in one of those two quarantine places at the practice centers, TV cameras put everywhere. You, you limit the production. It's not, it's not crazy. I really like that comparison of the playoffs to a sprint since NBA playoffs of the past have always felt more like a marathon to me. Jeff is a sprint with fewer games and a truncated playoff schedule. The best way for the NBA to proceed. I think they're going to need to get creative. And I think, I think we need to get, collectively, we need to get our heads around the fact that this will not be a normal playoffs. In fact, if I was betting on this right now, I don't think there's going to be a playoffs at all. And I, I, oh wow. Yeah, no, I, I wait, have you made a bet on that? I don't know. No, I don't know if there's lines for that. I mean, that's a pretty dark thing. (laughs) So so you would, there's just not lines available. Yeah. No, (laughs) the books aren't taking that. Uh, I'll look into it, but, um, I mean, is there a sadder NBA bet? Will there be the NBA this year? I think it's a grim reality. So I do think if they, if this is going to happen, they're going to have to make major concessions. And we we spoke about this before that the nature of the NBA and the sort of lack of playoff parity with you know or every team to make the final since the Knicks were an eight seed uh, so many years ago has been one of the top four seeds, which which shows that yes, these are the eight teams that usually will make the finals. The other eight teams in this 16-team playoffs are kind of irrelevant. Now, granted, you know, there's some... That would mean that there's no Rockets, there's no Sixers. But but generally, I mean, all the good teams are there. The, the, both LA teams are there, and, and, and the Bucks and the Celtics and all that. So, I mean, I think, obviously, people would still eat it up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the we've seen upsets happen in other sports, and maybe you could make the case if you were one of these bubble teams in in a different sport that hey, you know, we could make a run. Uh, why, why why not give us the chance? But yeah, in the NBA, it's so rare. Like really, these teams that that were outside the top four seeds probably don't have like a legitimate case to make that they could pull off a string of upsets and and actually be the true best team. So before anyone plays any games, there would need to be a ramp-up training period. Neil, how would that work? Talking about just protocols to get the players ready, there was this story about players going through an 11-day stretch of workouts 
where they were still having social distancing and and uh, presumably be kind of quarantined uh, at that time, but just to get you know ramping up activity at least from whatever they're doing now i mean i saw um jason tatum i think said he hasn't touched a basketball since uh the celtics last game which is kind of wild yeah that's Uh, really surprising but then you see you know it's it's interesting people were saying you know in i think it was a brian windhorst story uh where where some executive was talking about that some there's a wide gamut of how uh prepared players can be during this time of isolating uh, and quarantining. Some players have mansions where they have basically their whole, like a normal gym. They're playing, you know, they're practicing indoors. You saw like Trey Young was on like a, you know, a, dri- a driveway shooting, you know, uh, Paul Pierce had kind of a court set up, but, uh, you know, he's not a current player, but it's kind of similar uh, to the, to the range of setups. And, and some players who are at the fringe are probably staying, you know, in, in a small apartment or maybe, you know, even at their parents' house. And so we're talking about like wide ranges of different uh, ability to stay in shape during this period. And so that's another reason why I think that once the players can kind of be cleared for some kind of team-based activity, it might take a while for some of them to get back into game shape. And, and uh, some of it is also, you know, the teams have told the players, you have to treat you can't treat this like it's vacation. You can't treat this like it's the off season. Yeah. You have to be doing, you know, staying in some semblance of, of form and how easy that is for some is gonna be different from others. So yeah. uh, I, I think those are all considerations. Obviously, there are lesser considerations than keeping the players uh safe from catching the coronavirus. Uh but it's it's also a consideration that you've got you're asking players to kind of ramp up to full activity and risk injury kind of starting from from cold yeah you have to you you can't if you're an nba player you can't just like eat the stockpile of quarantine snacks you have to say which is a real risk you hear about some of these guys with their candy addictions yeah for sure i also now have this image of like nba players walking around their apartments like sullen teenagers just like bouncing the you know bouncing the basketball and irritating their moms you know <laughs> yeah i really i'm gonna have that in my head now i think I well like that. you don't want to practice with a nerf hoop also you might lose your your shooting touch on a real hoop oh that's a good point i, I can have... say that from experience in, in uh in high school <laughs> so we're we're hearing a lot about the nba's plans in part because there is a lot of money on the line for them I tend to think about the NBA as this like billion dollar industry that's just going to be fine, especially compared to the like local businesses, restaurants and and independent stores that stand to lose so much right now. But there's a lot at stake here if the NBA doesn't figure out how to play this year, too. Neil, what could be at risk for the league? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think the NBA is at risk of going out of business or anything anything like that anytime soon but they are losing a lot of money by not having the gate receipts uh and i i think we talked about this in a previous episode that something like 20 to 25 percent of the nba's revenue comes from just fans coming to games uh and that's just for the regular season obviously they charge more for playoff tickets and that ends up actually being really lucrative for the teams that go deep into the playoffs Uh, and so we're talking about potentially a billion dollar loss for the NBA if they don't if they're not able to play uh, the rest of the season, uh, including the playoffs. And 
as a result of that, the CBA between the Players Association and the league has this force majeure clause, which basically enables them to uh, take away or I guess for some of the for some of the players, it would be just not send them checks, basically, and and not pay them the remainder of their salary, commensurate to the amount of money uh, the amount of money they make for each game missed. The players can either give back money now, or they can give back money later in the form of the salary cap for next season being set lower than it was projected to be, potentially much lower. So uh, there there are mechanisms under normal circumstances, including this escrow account. That if the NBA players make more money or a higher percentage of the league's revenue than was agreed to in the CBA, they will hold out this money in this escrow account and then it will kind of be parsed out at the end of the season uh, and they won't have to do something with the salary cap. However, the amount of money that is withheld in escrow is not at all adequate, potentially, to cover all of the losses that the league might incur this season. And that's when you start getting into next year's salary cap being affected. And it could still be affected. I mean, they were already talking about when Daryl Morey tweeted in support of the protesters in Hong Kong that it would materially affect the because the loss of Chinese uh, revenue, it would materially affect the salary cap for next season. The amount of money revenue that will be lost because of the coronavirus uh, dwarfs any money that would be lost because of the Chinese television contracts being altered. And so I think those are all the considerations that we're talking about when we're thinking about the, the motivations that the league has to play out the playoffs for sure. And that the motivation that the players have to come back and, and, and play in whatever format the league uh, deems to be safe and appropriate. Well, this is going to hit all players in some way, but players who are supposed to be free agents this summer have to be sweating how this is going to work. I think uh, along, I think that's actually the most interesting ramification too. If you go back and look at last um, last off seasons, all the maneuverings, like the Clippers are going to, if they don't have an NBA season, and this was the year that they really were gearing up for a title with Kawhi and George, and now those guys um, have free agency looming or I, I guess at least an opt out um, that that's devastating. Cause you know, they, they really put all their, they pushed all their chips in on this season and now it could be canceled on the flip side. Any team that was stockpiling cap space for next year is, is going to look a lot better and, and look at what the nets did. I mean, if you go back in time and, you know, taking a risk on, on taking Durant or taking on Durant, um, knowing he's going to miss a season. And that turns out that season didn't happen anyway. Um, they look great. Likewise, the Warriors in a complete rebuild after dominating for so long are going to come out of this great. I mean, there's a scenario where the Warriors never like miss a beat because this season could get completely wiped off the books. That's wild to think about how how decisions you make just I mean, they don't you can't possibly know what's what's going to happen and then have this just like the season just end up not really mattering. That's that's just devastating for some and a great, you know, stroke of luck for others. So the NBA is trying to put this together, having seen basketball in China halted again and basketball in Japan and South Korea canceled altogether. But there is still basketball happening in the world, believe it or not. Taiwan's Super Basketball League is alive and well. Jeff, can the NBA learn anything from what Taiwan is doing? I think they can learn from some of the little things they're doing in terms of um, the social distancing 
is pretty interesting. You know, they keep, you know, fewer than 100 people in the arena, if you even call them arenas. Um, for these games, you know, just a limited number of personnel, and they take all these interesting measures, like they, you know, take their temperature before they can, um, you know, go on the court. They have mandatory uh hand washing or uh, hand sanitizing after they do layup lines and that kind of thing. You have to wear rubber soled shoes or you have to take your shoes off if you, if you go in there. So there's like a lot of little things they can learn, but I think on a macro level, like there's no comparison between the United States and Taiwan. Taiwan has had one of the best responses to COVID-19. And we've seen this with a lot of these kind of small Island nations Singapore, um, even what like Hong Kong did, um, where they can contain it, they can contain, you know, who comes in and out. And they were also very aggressive early on with the testing and, and, and the travel bans and the social distancing and, and all this stuff that is just not happened here where, you know, we've seen like the worst response globally. So it, it is a nice, like in a vacuum, a nice little lesson on how it can happen. But I think it's actually, if you look at the measures they're going through and their problem is just, you know, not even in comparison to what is happening in this country, in some ways, I think it's a kind of a pessimistic view of, of how possible this is. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Taiwan had 400 cases, reported cases, six deaths from this disease. That's for a country of almost 24 million people. So it's yeah, it's really not not comparable to what's happening here at all. Yeah, and it's also there's only five teams in that league, so it's uh, it's a lot easier, I think, to kind of contain and, and manage that pool of, of player population than for a 30 team league. Now, maybe we could argue only five teams to, to our point earlier. Maybe only five teams matter in right. the NBA, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, the three of the five are the Bucks, Lakers, and Clippers, and then. You know, our odds still have the Sixers and Rockets uh, as as numbers four and five in the um, championship odds when play ceased. But I think you could maybe take exception with those two if they're outside the top four seeds. But <laughs> I don't know. May, maybe treat it like oh, there's only five teams in the NBA. Yeah. No, I, but I do think it's like it's such a different um, situation. But some of the stuff, whenever the NBA does try to come back, they will have to use these other examples as a model of what to do like you know the temperature checks the rubbing alcohol sprayed on your hands you know uh during timeouts and and basically after after every stretch of play where you were touching the ball speaking of taiwanese sports i also saw a fun headline with their baseball league um in the stadiums they've been putting mannequins in place of fans (laughs) posing holding like little pennants and signs. And I think they also said uh, robot drummers. So, I mean, they're innovating. They're in, uh, base, I think they're, they're going to have uh, mechanical pets also in the stands. I'm not making this up, by the way. <laughs> they, somebody tweeted a picture of them. I saw, yeah, cardboard cutouts of, of, of fans and pets, like cats and dogs on the steps, like in the aisles. But why? Are they gonna pump? Wait, but I know. Why? I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I mean, it's a great question, uh, which we don't have the answer to. Does that mean that people normally bring pets to baseball games there? Is that what they're trying to do with that? Because that's interesting. I don't know. I think 
I think we I mean, have don't some they research have that, to do as soon as this podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> don't they have that sometimes here uh, in MLB? There's like a bring your pet to the ballpark day. Sure, but I that's feel not like, I've like seen that. that's not like so integral to the American version of the game that we would make cardboard cutouts of the pets. Right. As stand-ins for fans, Maybe they're right? emotional right. support animals for the players. <laughs> right, yes. You ever think about that? You know, I haven't. I wonder where uh, creating robotic pets or cardboard pets is on MLB's priority list right now. I mean, they should maybe start thinking about this. I mean, there are no games going on. Someone should be in charge of that, right? <laughs> what I else think are the, they doing? The bigger point, though, just about all this with the NBA and 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 everything going on, and really every sport, is that this is the time, you know, we, we on this podcast talk about crazy hypotheticals all the time, but this is crazy hypothetical season. I mean, there needs to be creative thinking. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just sports. It's really like restaurants, you know, airplanes, movies, like everyone needs to sort of reboot expectation and really think outside of the box um, because things will be different, at least for this year. And and possibly for next year and and, go, and forward. And nobody would criticize you for coming up with weird things at this moment too. You know, especially in baseball, where you see always traditionalist fans kind of complaining about this, that, or the other change uh, to baseball. This is their chance to get weird, and I feel like nobody could really say something because look, we're all going to have to adjust and do things differently, no matter what. So you're all you're going to get uh, a different product in any version of things so why not just get as weird as possible get weird guys that's a i think that's a great that's the that's our takeaway that's a good takeaway for the leagues too hopefully they're they're paying attention okay i think that's a good place to leave this for now let's take a break and we'll be back with a special guest for our rabbit hole of the week at 538 we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, we're so happy to be joined by Brad Baluchian, author of The Wax Pack, a new book from the University of Nebraska Press. Hi, Brad. Hey, how are you? So, Brad, uh, you've done something that is very in the spirit of the rabbit hole segment that we do here on the show and really taken it to a whole new level. So for the for the listeners out there, you decided to open a sealed pack of Topps baseball cards from 1986 and then basically track down all the players on those cards and find out what happened to them. Right. Who were the players and, and what did you find? Well, um, yeah, it was certainly it was a six-year rabbit hole, so from, from beginning to end. The, <laughs> the best the, kind. Yeah, the, the pack, as you might imagine, ranged from superstar players like Dwight Gooden, Carlton Fisk, all the way to um, pretty no-name guys like Jaime Kokenauer, uh, which was part of the elegance of the idea, in my opinion, was you're, if you're constrained by the randomness of a, of a single pack, you just you play the cards you're dealt, and I love that idea that I'm kind of at the mercy of whatever whatever chance has in store for me in that rabbit hole. So, um, so yeah, I went out and really it started with just a simple premise of you know is there life after baseball? What happens when you're done playing? Because what other profession are you 35 and you can never do that one thing again, right? And it actually evolved into so much more, which I was really you know happy about that. The, the story as I met guys and they opened up to me became much more a story about 
vulnerability, about impermanence, and kind of about the the difference between what it means to be a fan as a kid versus an adult. Were you a uh, a card collector growing up? Was that part of the inspiration to take on? I this was. Project? You know, I think about like so. I'm I'm 39 now. I, I was uh, six years old in 1986, which is the year that the cards came from. And that's the first year I remember collecting cards. And I just think back to all those hours on the floor with the cards spread out in front of me. I mean, that, you know, we didn't have internet iPhones back then. So that was our iPhone, right? And just all the time I spent organizing the cards and the systems I came up with. So, yeah, there's definitely a, a strong connection to the nostalgia of my childhood there. So what was your favorite discovery that you made about any of these guys? Well, I think the the biggest surprise, number one, was it was wonderful how they opened up to me because, I mean, I really wanted to write a book that was different from most sports books in that it's not about a single season or a team. And it's it's really a, a narrative nonfiction uh, book. It's there's a story arc. I'm in I'm in the story. I'm the, the, sort of the narrator as I, we go and meet all these players and I didn't know how they were going to react to me. I mean, I, I'm not as I'm a, actually a biology professor. I usually write about science, so I didn't bring any special, you know, credentials with me. So they, I, they could have easily just told me to buzz off, you know. Um, but they did. They did the opposite, which was they really opened up and shared a lot of things from their personal lives about. Uh, so one of the things that surprised me was how many of these guys had really had challenging childhoods, especially their relationships with their fathers. And how many of them had had fathers that either abandoned them or were abusive or, you know, somehow a strained relationship. And so that kind of father-son relationship became one of the big themes of the book. But it was especially um, touching and, and satisfying to see that these guys had broken that cycle with their own sons. So a lot of them had, rather than, you know, perpetuate what had been done to them, they were great fathers. And so I got, I got a chance to meet with some of them with their kids present to be able to see that firsthand. Oh, that seems like a really hopeful thing to, to learn about things that were pretty terrible for these guys. Were you uh, fans of any of these players beforehand? Did you know a lot about any of them or were you kind of going into it cold with most of them uh, when you actually met them? One of the players was my favorite player as a kid, a guy named Don Carmen. I was a really strange kid in that my favorite players were the, the guys that were not the stars, the underdog guys. Like I had the inverse reaction when opening a pack that most people have. <laughs> Uh, in fact, when I opened this pack and I saw someone like Carlton Fisk, a Hall of Fame player, I kind of grimaced because I was like, <laughs> "You're like, get I'm that like, out of oh, here!" Oh <laughs> man, this guy's probably not going to want to talk to me. Probably going to have a big ego. Um, so, but someone like Don Carmen, who you know didn't have a big following, for him to be in the pack and to get to meet my own hero as an adult was a, a, a wonderful thing, and uh, I think a highlight of the book. That's kind of amazing. So one of the players ended up being your childhood right. favorite so, player, just at well, random out of this pack. Well, some people reasonably suspicious about that. And so I'll, I will say that I, I so I, I say in the book that I opened a few packs because if I open just one and half the guys are dead, that's not a very good book. But, but contrary <laughs> right. to some skeptics, I did not open packs until I got my favorite player. So uh, <laughs> yeah, but it was nice that I could, but then, you know, again, the, the challenge there is, okay, here I am going to meet my favorite player, and so the eight-year-old inside is is just having a field day. 
But I also knew because I had met with his mom and his brothers back in Oklahoma where he grew up several days prior to meeting him in Florida that I was going to ask him some questions that were going to make him really uncomfortable, like about his father who died when he was young and their strained relationship. And so it's a, it's a really weird position to be literally talking to your childhood hero, knowing you're going to ask him maybe the question that he most dreads hearing, right? And so it's like the journalist versus the the fan and how do you reconcile those? You know, I think that's something that so many sports writers have to come to terms with. And I think some people do it do it better than others because, you know, there are these complicated stories of these athletes. But if you grew up idolizing someone, are you going to be able to ask those hard questions? Um, and not, not everyone And can. I had the benefit of, I think it's harder for, say, a, a beat writer or a newspaper writer to do this, whereas in this kind of book, which is this creative nonfiction, I could get around that by just openly telling the reader, hey, I'm biased. Like, you know, like, here's, here are all of my biases, you know, right now, and just sort of that full disclosure so that the reader could, you know, see for themselves what I was going through. Now, you mentioned that, you know, in addition to being about the players and their careers and even baseball, that you actually are kind of a, a person central to the story, that the book is very much about you. What has baseball meant to you and, and how has it changed the course of you writing the book? Yeah, I think I always knew that. I mean, you could you could take this initial idea and write many different types of books with it. and But I knew I had a very specific vision for what I wanted to do, which was... How do you tell this story? How do you tell 15 very different stories in one book and bring it all together? And I saw the only way I could do that was if I sort of serve as the bridge between all the players. And um, for me, in doing that, it, it it was just a reminder as I go. I mean, the road trip, the travel log, it's very much hand in hand with the spirit of baseball. And I think what makes baseball so appealing is that it's is actually the fact that it's really slow. <laughs> so the reason why a lot of people don't like it is the reason why I love it, which is that because you have so many gaps in the action, it kind of creates all this space for building relationships and for and for thought and for introspection and for pause, right? It's not a, uh, there's, you know, there's just these bursts of action punctuated in it with all these long gaps. And so... For me, I, I talk about in the book baseball being the backdrop for building relationships, and that's kind of what makes it special. Did you play growing up? Not well. Um, yeah, I <laughs> I always was so uh, fear was always a big part of my childhood in terms of like I talk in the book about dealing with OCD and all of that. And I actually, because of fear, I hated batting. Most people, that's the reason. That's what they want to do the most is go up and hit. I hated hitting. I wanted to be a pinch runner and a pinch fielder, like a late inning defensive replacement. I would be the the greatest utility player in the history of baseball, right? Just ne never make me hit uh, because it was too much pressure. So I played through Little League and then uh, I was happy to just to become a fan from there. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. But I've always thought that is the the most impressive part of, of really good baseball players, how they can get up there in the batting box and and do the thing, even though everyone is staring at you, it's all on you. That pressure must be um, immense. And yeah, how baseball players react to that is fascinating to right. me. Right. The thing is, you know, we, we often think like that they're not nervous. They're incredibly nervous. Like if you actually, I mean, so Don Carmen, who's a sports psychologist now, told me that, you know, he goes, his job now is when Bryce Harper goes into a slump. I should back up. He's 
the staff psychologist for Scott Boris. So he goes around and talks to Boris's clients during the season when they go into a slump. And, and no one is immune to, to a slump and, and nerves and all of that. And you know, if you watch baseball carefully and you see it, you see that the hitters and the pitchers take these big, deep breaths, right? Like, and like, that's because their heart is pounding. So, you know, just because they get to that level doesn't mean they, they're not incredibly nervous. That's, I kind of like that, that they're, you know, millionaire baseball players are just like us. Right. Well, and, <laughs> they get and, nervous And that's too. kind of like actually the thesis of my book, really, is when you, that's what you kind of take out of it. Um, I was going to ask you one more question, just what, how you're dealing with the, um, the lack of baseball right now. Are you doing anything to keep baseball in your life while it is not happening? I, I'm not dealing with it very well. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if anything, I'm probably, so I, I, one really awesome side effect of this is a bunch of us who have, who have baseball books that have come out now, all of us had our, our book tours completely upended by this whole thing. So we we actually got together and decided to to form this club called the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, where <laughs> we're all gonna we're all basically helping each other. So we created a platform where we interview each other and we promote each other's books. I mean, it's something that would probably unfortunately not have happened if it wasn't for this, but it's actually been a way that we've come together and people like Anika Orak and Eric Nussbaum and Jason Turbo were out all working we're all have all have different publishers and different books but we're all kind of working collectively which has been a really nice side effect that's awesome and i guess one thing that we can do and our listeners can do while there's no baseball is read your book (laughs) so thank you (laughs) the wax pack by brad belukjian is available from the university of nebraska press thank you so much for joining us brad it was great to go down this rabbit hole with you thank you anytime i love rabbit holes that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please review and rate us on your podcast app. It really does help new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.